0: Welcome to the Student Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Rutherford, from Learn, Grow, Become, where we work with universities and higher education providers to empower mature age and part-time students to gain the mindset, the strategies, and the confidence to succeed in their studies. and welcome to this week's podcast. Today joining me is the lovely Alf Lizio, who I have been a long time fan of, which is slightly embarrassing for Alf, I'm sure. Uh, Alf is currently the Dean and Director of the Centre for Learning Futures at Griffith University, and they focus on facilitating organizational learning and development in the higher education sector. He leads a team of talented and committed staff, designing and developing innovative student learning environments, developing academic leaders, and contributing to evidence-informed practice, as well as facilitating student success and employability. A psychologist by training, ELF started in the areas of youth unemployment, child and family, and corrective services, and this was followed by roles incorporating leadership and management development, team effectiveness, and program design and evaluation. ALF came to higher education with the goal of advancing an approach to education that intentionally integrated theory and practice and valued the necessity, uh, the necessary synergy of personal and professional development. ALF is particularly passionate about education and the difference it can make in enriching our personal and professional worldviews. So I'd like to welcome you, ALF. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Tonya. Appreciate the invitation. Thank
0: you. So I guess for many of us, um, and certainly something I've seen uh, across the sector, is we discount past and lived experiences in our current work, particularly where it seems out of sync of what we do on a daily basis. So reflecting on your own diverse background, how does a person's background contribute to the work, and particularly your work, that you're doing now in enhancing student
1: experience? So a bit of a life story, eh? All right. Okay. So um, imagine uh, a young boy, no more than a boy, uh raised in a country town um, who um did reasonably well at school and thought, well, oh, maybe I'll go further, but with zero understanding of what that meant. And so got in a train, it was a train in those days, not a plane, got in a train to come to Brisbane to, quote, go to uni. Uh, uh, first in family, no, no mental maps whatsoever for that experience. Um, arrived and, frankly, spent the first six months in total shock about what the hell was going on. Um, and, you know, that, that experience has stayed with me for a long time, <laughs> you know. Multiple transitions in there from country to city, um, you know, from um, big fish in a small pond to tadpole in a giant ocean, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I've always been then uh, acutely aware then, because of that experience, of the dynamics of transition in people's lives and just what's involved to bridge those transitions. Uh, and so, you know, I will often reflect back on that. Now, that story has an interesting ending because I enrolled in a degree of Bachelor of Commerce and Bachelor of Law. And my career guidance consisted of watching a TV program called Perry Mason in, on black and white television. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that looks like a career choice. <laughs> and it just shows the paucity of, what, of the support that was available in those days. And so you, you know how this story is going to end. It's going to end in a road crash. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So I struggled through first year thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And this is not fun at all. But through just through persistence, got myself into second year, and then the wheels just totally fell off. It was just like and I just failed everything, you know, it was just kind of like dropping out in a big way. Um, and then I thought, oh, I'll come back again and I'll I'll just try again. And I sort of did an arts degree, started an arts degree, but the that was just palliative care, really, because I didn't even know why I was at uni or, or anything like that. So I just basically dropped out of uni after that for about five, five, seven years, until I grew up basically and worked out what I want to do with my life. And, and I, it, it's really reinforced to me the importance of a sense of purpose for students. Yeah. And if you don't know what you're doing, you've got no, you've got no wind under your wings at all, you know. So I, 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 I often reflect on the value of that failure experience for me and what I learned from that. And I brought that empathically back to my practice these days, you know. Um, So I came back to uni in my late 20s, early 30s as a mature age student. I did study after that. I studied uh, what was called distance education, not even online education. Things came in a package in the mail. And I did really, really well because I knew knew what what I wanted to do and how to do it at that stage. So, you know, it's all about alignment with purpose, you know. So, so that's the first part of my story of my lived experience bringing to practice. I've other, other aspects of my lived experience that are enriching for what I do now, but I think we forget what it's like to be young and hopeless. That makes sense.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Academic we're in love. As academics, we're in love with our discipline, and we expect that to be contagious, but it just isn't. It's not an infection model, you know. So, does that yeah. make sense from your perspective? Does that? Oh, do you have a similar story? <laughs> yeah, I
0: can still remember sitting in my first lectures looking around yeah. at everyone going, what do I do? Like, yes, yes. And everyone's just exactly. writing down whatever's on the overhead because, you know, that's yeah. where I was
1: too. Oh, you had overheads. Yeah, we had overheads. Harley <laughs> <technology. laughs> Overheads, wow. <laughs> we just had some law lecturer talking into the ether. <laughs> oh, nice. On. No visual mode at all. It's interesting. Anyway, mm-hmm. so much for nostalgia. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, so um, I, went, I went back, uh, did my psych degree uh, later uh, as a mature age student, mature being 30, if that counts, I don't know, um, and then went into private practice, uh, worked in uh, public sector and private practice, and really got immersed in the value of, of practice as the great teacher, you know, uh, learning, learning experientially, learning from colleagues. Uh, learning where your comfort zones are and then stretching them, the good stuff that you do, and and learning from that experience about just how unsupported new graduates were. Um, You know, I worked in a department called Children's Services in those days, and the average life expectancy of a new graduate was 18 months because the work was so tough. And because the universities were continually, continually producing new graduates, the system just kept consuming them, and no one recognized the problem that we would just take them in, chew them up, spit them out, and new ones would come. And so, I think both in the transition out space, we don't do it well, transition in space, we don't do well, but the transition out space, yeah. equally culpable. So, so, once again, it's this notion of transition and preparing people for what's ahead of them and giving them the resources they need. To cut a long story short, uh, after about 10, 12 years in uh, professional practice, um, Griffith set up a, a degree program which was intentionally based on the integration of theory and practice. And my eyes sparkled and I thought, ah, this is what we need. This is the next. So that, that actually drew me back into higher education. And um, I did a PhD part-time because in those days you could get hired as a lecturer without a PhD. Uh, but they said, oh, you've got skills. Quick, come in. We need some skills. <laughs> I'm not sure if that narrative still holds true, but anyway. Uh, and, and so we created uh, from the ground up the number one rating psychology program in Australia because we did theory practice integration, which is the only program in Australia that did that explicitly. Mm. Uh, And it's it's looking back a moment of great pride for us because, um, you know, our graduates were in great demand because they could not only talk about it, they could actually do it. And employers were knocking down the door for that sort of stuff. Uh, But like most things, we decided to get respectable the thought oh, no, we can't be too out on the edge and be too practical we have to bring them back to the middle and have more academic rigor and so you know, as is the fate of most innovations you lose the edge uh, mm-hmm. and you become respectable at your own risk uh, and so well, those things go through life cycles you know um, nothing is forever yeah. so anyway that's a that's a kind of cook's tour of some of the lived experience that i've had and how that informs me today i think the, the importance of uh Purpose, I think that's really important to give people a sense of purpose. The importance of managing transitions uh, intentionally explicitly. Even at the course level, there are transitions to be managed all over the place, but we need to do them intentionally. And the importance, I think, of authenticity as an educator and being engaged there, bringing your whole self into the space. Students respond to that. I always say to staff, you cannot, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the section at the moment about engagement, student engagement. And I say to staff, look, Enough with the theory of engagement. You cannot engage students from a personally disengaged position. If you're not engaged, don't expect them to engage. It's, it's a two-way street. Authenticity is the secret sauce for all that sort of stuff. And then I will get the pushback saying, yes, but, you know, big classes, they overwhelm us, you know, I've got very busy. I'm going, well, you've got to make some choices here about where you invest yourself, you know. So how's that for the answer to the first question? I like
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the things I really, and you sort of touched on it, particularly with the sense of purpose, is the five senses of student success that you developed. Right. Um, yes. So do you want to talk us through about those five and, and how they sort of fit in together with the, the learning uh, experience?
1: It's, a, it's um, Kurt Lewin, who's a great social scientist in the 40s and 50s, mm. said, there's nothing so, quite so practical as a good theory. Uh, and, and, and he's right in the sense that what it does is it creates a shared language. Yeah. We can talk about things, you know. And my intention there was to create a shared language between staff and students, something so simple that they both could, both could talk to each other about what was, what was happening for both of them. And so it was just an attempt to, almost an example of cross-cultural communication to bridge them and us. <laughs> <if you like. laughs> uh, and, and so what, basically what I did was I just spoke to students. I interrogated literature. I said, look, you know, at the end of the day, this is really quite a simple task. There are five areas where we need to develop our academic muscles in, uh, and um, number one is identity. You know, the sense of developing your identity as a student um, and developing the sense that you deserve to be here uh, and that this is something that will be validated in your life. And you see a lot of you see this a lot in uh, first generation students where unless you've got family capital that says this is an expected part of your future, you don't have an activating scheme in your head that says, yeah, this is who you're going to be. This is something you can claim confidently. You have, you're quite tenuous in claiming that as part of a legitimate part of your life. And so with a shaky identity, everything else falls, everything else gets shaky as well. So that sense of of entitlement to be here, you know, um, fundamental. Um, So that's, that's the heart or the engine room of the whole thing. And as I, Spent a lot of time with students affirming their value, affirming the fact that they should be here and are deserving of being here and, and saying, don't look for evidence that you don't belong because any little failure will be construed as evidence that you don't belong. Stop that self-talk. And it's, I talk about it as academic hygiene. Get your hygiene right. Don't, don't be disabling yourself with that sort of talk. So identity is the beating heart. And then the other four enablers are purpose, which is why am I here and what do I hope to achieve? Yep. And I think as academics, we do our students a great disservice. We can we can do purpose-based talks so quickly. You know, what's the purpose of this course? Where does it fit? What skills would you get? How does this align with career? These are just simple, low-hanging fruit. It doesn't take five minutes to do it, you know. But we st- we jump straight into the discipline stuff and talk about the content. Just step back a bit and talk about context, you know. So purpose is really important. Um, a capability is the other key bit of this, which is, you know, the biggest mistake that we do to students is is not tell them that university learning is different to high school learning or other forms of learning. And there are rules of the game and there's hidden curriculums and we need to be constructed. And we just make this tacit stuff explicit. They can can develop the skills, but we don't tell them that. We just gotta get on with the content again, you know? Uh, Or or when we do talk about it, we talk about it in terms of study skills. And it's a lot more than just study skills. It's mindset, it's all sorts of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, Third bit is connection. Which is relationships. We know from the stress research that relationships are a buffer; they're protective. If you've got relationships, you're going to be more able to get through uh, difficult difficulty uh, and roadblocks, um, and more able to learn with peers. Um, and then finally, resourcefulness, which is the fourth kind of wrap around of, of around identity, is pretty much being able to navigate your work-life balance. Um, you know, I say to students. Um, you know, when the university gives 10 credit points to a course, uh, this might be secret knowledge for you, but 10 credit points equals 10 hours work a week. Well, if they all fall off their chairs going, what? That's 40 hours a week with four courses. I'm going, yep, now who? For whom was ever surprised? They all put their hands up. Now, let's deconstruct your lives about where you're going to stick 40 hours into this already full life you've got. And so this is, these are the skills of self-regulation and time mm. management. And that's where so many kids fall off the, the perch. They really do, you know. We don't help them self-regulate that complex space, you know, and navigate the university system for help. So, yes, anyhow, five senses was just trying to name what we know to be common sense stuff that you have to manage, but yep. then making that discussable and then using using that framework as a design tool for orientation, for first-year first, first year courses and so on. So, you know, it's sim- simple, but the key thing is having the conversation, you know. Yeah,
0: and, I, and, I, and that's what I really love about it. Um, yeah. It's something I've used since I've been designing um, student leadership programs since
1: 2015,
0: and it just, just say, it's like, this is the framework. How do you feel about each of these? Where are your gaps? Not, you know, where are the gaps to the overall, you know, program or anything else, but looking at people as individuals because the perspective is going to be different for each one. Absolutely. Someone might have a really
1: strong sense of purpose, but absolutely mm -hmm. complex life. You know, we we get a lot of people who've got complex family lives, they're caregivers, How you going to manage all that and do this? You know, and you're going to, to be very intentional about it. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: And at the same time, we're wanting them to like, just say, be more engaged, to volunteer, to do this, yeah, right. to do that, and then they've got all those other things. And we're still thinking in that yep. old school. You've only got university; you don't have all these other things. Um, That's exactly right. Because mm. you're all
1: independently wealthy. That's right. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited.
0: So talking about the Learning Futures program, so what are some of the insights that you might be able to share with us about the future of higher education and its role in the future of learning? Because there's obviously alternatives.
1: Yeah. Look, I think the big narrative shift that's happened in the last five years, and it's going to exponentially increase, is the shift from teaching to design for learning. Mm. The old paradigm is teaching content. And learning is a kind of uh, well, good luck we'll making that as an outcome, versus we design now explicitly for learning in mind. And design for learning is a is a, is a growing body of knowledge and skill, uh, and we know we know increasingly how to do that. But the shift to design, um, and I think um, what that signals for the first time is that we've spent in the traditional narrative a lot of energy on trying to make students university-ready. Now we're shifting the narrative to say, let's make university (laughs) student-ready. And that's just going to blow some people's minds, but that's what we've got to do, you know? Um, That's what student diversity requires us to do. That's what common sense requires us to do, but that's another story. Um, And for the first time, we have to be emotionally and intellectually honest and say to ourselves we need to design a self-involving narrative around what makes the student success. Historically, student success has been a function or a narrative has been a function of what's wrong with the student, the wrong demographics, the wrong ATAR, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Their, their lives are too complex. And so we've found non self-involving explanations for why students fail. If we're honest about it, we are also equally complicit in the failure success narrative. And so I think that's where the shift to, from teaching to design actually puts us in the frame. We put ourselves in the frame, and the quality of our calls design in the frame. Uh, and that's a big, big stretch. And you said your skills there, but also mindset with, shift. Exactly right. But it's the only game in town, really. If, if we're serious, honestly, you know. Uh, and, and it shifts that whole experience from co-curricular palliative to curricular main game. You know. Um, yeah. Let's let's have four thousand peer mentoring programs. But the courses are so badly designed. No amount of peer mentoring is ever going to save a student. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's 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 a, it's a shift to honesty, and I and I think the key factor there is having more courageous academic leadership. We need leaders to stand in that space and say, "Guys, this is the new narrative. I know it's painful. I know it's a big stretch, but we without courageous leadership, we're not going to make that. We'll, we'll get we'll get lost in complaint, you know, yeah. angst, or more, more worse still." lost in nostalgia for the good old days when somehow it was easier when when because they were easier because when student fails no one cared you know and now the feds have made this a uh, kpi and apparently there's money attached to it if that's the reason for caring whatever but we should be caring without the money attached to it but yeah so yeah so, so i think design i think leadership and self-involving narrative is really fundamental um but no amount of design will work without a cultural membrane around that that says we're in relationship with you as students and we're, we're here to partner with you and to hear what you've got to say and create a culture of respect. Because we know that design without respect is just a factory, you know. Now, with respect, it becomes a co-creation experience. And that sounds highfalutin, but it actually it's a felt experience for students. They know when they're being respected and they'll, they'll step up to it, you know.
0: That's and my little. Yes. That's good. I like it. And So, is, so I mean, you mentioned students as partners, and I know I've noticed in the last 12 months particularly a lot more moving in that direction. Is that because we're starting to see a bit of a groundswell, do you think?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, I think the students as partners stuff um, risks becoming a fad and falling over. Um, in, in many ways, it shouldn't, but I think it, it may because I, I, I worry that um, the predominant narrative really is student as consumer. Um, mm. and, and I think that's got most of the energy behind it. Because if, if you think about students as partners, it almost exists as a corrective reaction against the dominant paradigm, which is students are here to consume some education then get a product called a useful degree and then go off and apply that degree in an employment context. And, you know, I I think we um, need to be more sophisticated in the way we construct these narratives. So, for example, people seem to phrase them as one or the other. I, I think students are smart. They know that in some spaces, they are consumers. So if I've got a course that's crappily designed, it's got poor materials, et cetera, et cetera, as a consumer, I expect the basic decency of having something that's presentable without typos and can be read and is available. You know, and in that sense, I've no a problem with the student as consumer narrative. Mm. They're entitled to that level of consumption, if you like. You know what I mean? Um, and then beyond that, I think um, student as learner uh, is another, another narrative that we can run, which is about, yes, there's some stuff that you don't know and some stuff that we know. Let's help you learn some of that stuff. Uh, and I think one of the challenges is that we've stepped away from that space. Um, and, you know, uh, and then the third narrative, I think, is student as partner, which is the sociocultural co-creation space. But none of those narratives are mutually exclusive. They actually, triple helix DNA, they they mutually, you know, each each for their own. And I think we, we often get into these Mexican standoffs and, and one narrative fighting as the other. Bring them together, integrate them and see the holistic nature of the lived experience of the student. All are valid, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think that the risk also with um, looking as and because I I like the concept of student as partners for things like student mentoring, peer support programs, and actually involving them in the decision making. But yeah, I can see if you take that too far, it's almost like making them responsible rather than accepting responsibility for the things that we need to do as well as higher education providers.
1: Exactly, and it's what's that phrase, um, the McDonaldization of higher education. (laughs) <laughs> where you, you, you clear your own tray and you, you know the whole thing, you know, sort of, uh, it was just, some stuff is on us. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. We do know some things. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is good. That's what we're paid for. Oh, like, to know something.
1: my salary is a joke otherwise, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think all, all of this speaks, I think, to shift in staff identity. Um, mm. you know, I think that's a major point of stress across the sector at the moment is what does it mean to be an academic or a university educator and the goalposts, the goalposts are shifting all the time, you know, mm. um, you know, we expect pastoral care. We expect course design, we expect programmatic thinking, you know, whereas before it was, I just teach my lecture and, you know, good luck if it connects with the other courses, but that's my lecture, you know, and, and so I, I think there's enormous tensions in what it means to be an academic and, and increasing complexity and demands on time uh, and now expected to be engaged with industry and, and so on and so on um, and a lot of people signed up to be academics under the old gig you mm. know I mean? now this new gig's caught up with them and they're going I'm not sure I want to do this so I think we've got a lot of work to do with staff success to support student success and I think as I talk to staff they say all this discourse of student success but what about us how can you help us so we can actually be useful to students? But also, you know, everything's about the students, and we're almost a forgotten, forgotten group in higher education. So that's what staff say. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably over, over a bit overclaimed, but I think there's some truth to it. Um, we could do more work in that space. You know, staff identity uh, and staff success, enabling them to be what we want them to be, because yeah. student success comes through staff enablement.
0: You know. And I think we make it a bit too complicated, too. Like, and you know, we mm-hmm. talk about academic to professional staff ratios, so we try and adjust yeah. those, but all we do is we shift the work. So then the academic That's is the administrator, they're the creative designer, they're the, the learner expert, and they're the marker and everything else, and it, it stops them from being able to actually focus on creating the content in a, that actually serves the purpose. And we can have other it's experts... Good.
1: I think you've named a really important point, which is the the loneliness of the long distance academic, which is Mm -hmm. the kind of the individual practitioner model that we've. And so if you've got an individual practitioner model, you keep inserting more expectations into the individual practitioner rather than saying, no, we're actually moving to a team based model Mm -hmm. uh, and let's allow that to grow and flourish to be what it could be. Um, I think we've got some way to go with that yet, but I think you're spot on. Part of that is deprivatizing the classroom so that people feel, don't feel threatened by that and losing mm. their control of what they think they're doing. But part of it's also, I think, creating narratives in higher education that say, um, you know, traditionally we talk about first, second and third space professionals. Um, I think we need to stop that. It's one space and we're all in it. Uh, the third space professional sounds like they're just tapped on. Oh, look, there's a third <laughs> space coming along for the ride. No, 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 I think we need to, It's one space and we're all in there um and 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 minimizing the threat and maximizing the opportunity. And I think academics will soon see that their workloads will go down. A well-designed course with a team around it has much fewer student complaints, many, much fewer student emails asking what are we supposed to be doing here. You know, it just makes life easier. Um, So we've got to find the self-interest in this narrative and show people that's actually not a threat, but actually a useful thing for their sustainability. that's, yeah. my, that's my belief anyhow. <laughs> that's my optimistic belief, you
0: know. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it is, it is that getting that whole mindset shift. You know, we've got this, the academic teams that need to sort of change their, their thinking and their framework, but then we've got the overall organisation that sort of says, yes, but this is how we operate. Is it, this is how a university operates. and This is, you know, yeah. the way things work. And it's like, yes. but they're not working.
1: <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> Did you miss the email that said it's (laughs) (laughs) broken? Exactly. No, we've got a very antiquated business model. And I I think it will take probably the stress of competition to to finally help us wake up. Because if you think about the way we deliver, our overhead fixed costs are huge per course. Uh, Mm. And private providers and other providers can do per course offerings at much lower overheads. So we've, we've, we've got to find the unique value proposition of university education and make it affordable. Now, that's a scary conversation for many people, um, and it should be scary, but I don't think the world's gonna wait for these institutions to take their time to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, the conversation now about the future of higher education, um, universities as one player in an ecosystem of learning, but what is that? What is that unique role, and how can we not just privilege it, not privilege it, but actually optimise it? Mm. Going to be the big discussion, um, and I think you know it's the um, the conversation of whole of life learning that will be part of that. Um, you know, as you were rightfully saying at the beginning here, the model of uh, we take school leavers, we have them for a few years, we pump them out. They may come back to do a master's or not, but whatever, but we've done our job. We've, it's like we're a, we've, tr- we've applied some treatment at the beginning and hope that treatment lasts for the rest of their life, you know? Yep. So, so I think it's that whole-of-life learning, where are we in that conversation? Um, and, and more importantly, what's our value-add more broadly in society? Because, my God, the, anti, the, the vibe of anti-intellectualism that's coming across the globe at the moment mm. um, and the rejection of evidence in the face of what are fundamentally global crises, both culturally and economically and uh, environmentally. Universities have got a serious role to play in um, legitimating their value add, but br- brushing up on their brand as part of the civic conversation. I think, irrespective of the student success, the concept of university, I think, needs refurbishment. Um, and urgently, urgently. Um, people in power aren't necessarily our friends, you know? Um, so. Well, that's pretty positive, isn't really? it? It <laughs> is. What a great,
0: great, <laughs> great So that's all my questions. Did you have something positive too that we could end with some
1: exciting yes. things that you're working on? Well, I do, I mean, and okay. I, I, I don't. I, I'm not a doomsayer, <laughs> but I, I just think I, I think I think there are big issues that we need to tackle, mm. and we and we are tackling them. But I think there's an urgency that's not being appreciated. I yeah. think the, the, the timeframes to deal with some of these issues are a lot shorter than people think they are. Um, and so that's fine. Um, in coming back to the notion of student success uh, and, a, and a more and a more and a more focused uh, conversation about that, um, I think everybody agrees that um, we cannot hope that we cannot hope that the paradigm of accidental learning, which is what higher education was based on previously, uh, will sustain us. You know. I think we're now in the game and universities are saying this with increasing clarity. We are intentionalist; We intend to make a difference and make an impact. And the shift to design, the shift to uh, leadership as a key construct or key capability in our education, all these are signalling that there is an appreciation that we have a value proposition to put on the table and that we are stepping up to it. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. And I'm more optimistic about the fact that we're actually trialing different ways of doing this, not just one. Traditionally, it was one size fits all. Now we're being much more agile in the way we think about how we might deliver. And that's online, mass courses, extended courses, experientially based courses. So there's a lot more diversity in there, and diversity breeds innovation. Uh, and I think, well, I think we've appreciated that innovation is going to be what's going to save us. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. So. Awesome.
0: Very good. And, and are, there any, are there any projects that you're working on at the moment, Alf, or any research
1: that you're doing? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very interested in um, how people do or don't use evidence. Um, okay. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about evidence-based practice um, and versus practice based practice uh, and so you see this in the k12 sector a lot where you get a, a, a lot of research saying this is what makes for effective learning and the teachers in the classroom just don 't engage with it and they say this research doesn 't really appreciate the complexities of classroom practice and that and there 's almost a, a warfare between what the evidence says and what the practitioners are saying works or doesn't work for them and I think we are in danger uh, of uh, creating um, we're, we're in danger of uh, not honestly calling that so much of what we've done to date has been based on the apprenticeship model of education this is how I was taught and this I'll just keep replicating that and look, I've done a few things it seems to work I'll just keep doing that and it's very much a private reflective cycle and an, an apprenticeship cycle and I'm kind of interested in how to in, introduce evidence into that cycle where staff don't feel threatened by what the evidence might say about their practice. Mm. And because I think at the, at the end of the day, this whole movement will be, the whole movement to transformation will be based on staff's capacity to learn new ways of doing things and feel good about themselves in doing that. But at the moment, the moment we have a narrative of disruption, mm. which just scares people. We say, oh, your, your practice is going to be disrupted. This is going to be very good for everybody. And it was just, you wonder why they'd run away in fear and panic. <laughs> you know, The language is just wrong. So it's how do we gently introduce data, enable them to have conversations with their data, and they feel empowered and enabled by that. And it's not rocket science. So I'm thinking at the moment about how to use data-informed conversation as a tool for professional learning.
0: Yeah.
1: That's one of many things I'm doing, but that's probably the one I think that's got the most alignment with what we're talking about today.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds really good. And I like that, and it, you know, it is, you see, like, I mean, I think about when my parents, they were both primary school principals, primary yeah. school teachers, and they went through from the whole, um, you know, you go to teachers' college, you get you automatically allocated a role and progress yeah. through. It. and And there were always the people who would do it the way that we've always done it. And you hear it in any organization, we've always done it that way. We tried that before, you know, fifty years ago, and it didn't work. Exactly. And, but exactly. having that, ability to have an open conversation about, okay, well, what if we tried it in a slightly different way? Or, okay, so that's a different way of approaching what I thought we'd done before and just, yeah, changing, again, coming back to mindset again, what we were talking about earlier, isn't
1: it? Exactly right. Exactly right. But I, And I think often as, as researchers, we fail to respect the practice and the practitioners. Mm. We come in with this bright, shiny new finding yeah. and don't realise that every finding contains within an implied blame of practice. Guess what? Subtext, you've been doing this wrong all along. Oh, thanks for that feedback. I feel so much better about myself as a professional right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes, like I know when we do research, you know, often it's a really quite a small cohort that we're, you know, that we're working with. And so it's easy for other people to say, oh, but that won't work with mine because they're different. You know, you haven't done it with that particular group.
1: Yes, exactly right. Niche-based knowledge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's been really good. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Alf. That's been really great.
1: Thank you for allowing me to get on my soapbox.
0: No worries. I love soapboxes. They're so much fun. And that's the end of this episode of the Student Experience Podcast. I hope you can join us next week for another great interview.